afternoon, good morning, whenever you're listening. <laughs> Welcome to episode three of the OEA World Pod uh, with your host, Paul Duaney, and my co-host, Spike Catter. How are you doing, Spike? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm really looking forward to this one because we've got a special guest on this time. We have uh, Liverpool royalty, as far as I'm concerned. Historian, um, general, good guy, and... Uh, Liverpool Black History Tours. So, uh, Lawrence, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, Paul. Good to see you both. I haven't seen Spy Catch for a long time. I oh, know, it's been really a while. Good to see you. Well, this is these these uh, these little get-togethers are um, you know serve a lot of purposes as well as uh, yes. getting some good material out there. We get to catch up with each other because all the people that we get on this show are are friends of the show. So um, great to have you. So. Um, as you know, we have themes for the show every month. Uh, Lawrence has chosen um, his five best tracks, or five tracks that he couldn't live without. And then we're going to also talk to him about any uh, any hobbies that he might, might have that he wants to disclose, but we'll come to that in a bit. Um, also give you some more information about the festival uh, moving forward and any gigs we have coming up later on in the show but without further ado let's move on Lawrence uh first of all before we go into your five tracks tell me a little bit about your musical history um what you listen to you know the range of music that you listen to uh, it'd be interesting to, to hear because we had some really um good shouts from Guna yeah. uh that were quite surprising so let's let's hear what kind of musical background that you have yeah man. well I have quite a wide and varied taste when it comes to music but the music that I'm most fond of kind of comes from the rock blues genre. Okay. It's the music of the African diaspora, you okay. know, but it's been shaped and moulded through the experiences of people of African descent outside of the continent. Okay. And it does, it, it's not just music that's played by black people, but it's the music that's influenced people from lots of different backgrounds. So the first band that I really got into as a young, as a young kid, when I was about 11, 12, was The Doors. Okay. Mm. The Doors were like one of my favorite favorite bands, and I wasn't very, I wasn't aware of the the links to the blues with the Doors until I started looking a bit deeper. But you know, some of their music is probably the music that's been as most shaped my musical tastes. And it was from the it was out of the Doors that I really experienced Jimi Hendrix. Okay, and Jimi Hendrix led me on to Curtis Mayfield. And then I got into other bands that were kind of from that type of background. And it's really that music that um, has most influenced my musical taste today. I was also into like hip hop, but it's, you know, I, I put down like my hip hop taste kind of ends about 1993, 94. Once. So you're I, old school hip hop. Well, yeah, because I grew up in a very militantly black household. So public my, enemy. My, yeah. So my mum wouldn't tolerate any of that foolishness. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was all, it was like public enemy. The music that was associated with the struggle, you know, uh, Paris, um, oh, X-Clan yeah, was like, were probably my favourite, mm-hmm. even more so than Public Enemy. So that's kind of what I grew up on, mm-hmm. but I had that on both sides. So, and because of that, people used to think I had a really strange musical taste mm-hmm. because the kids who are, you know, who I'd play football with in school, they used to give me stick because I listened to The Doors because they were into heavy metal. And then the kids who were, who were, was into like, who had Sia around the house, they used to dig like the, the hip hop side of things, but didn't understand why I liked Jimi Hendrix and rock. Do you know what I mean? So it was quite interesting for me. Well, one of my observations out of that is like, uh, you know, Jim Morrison and uh, Jimi Hendrix, both really kind of uh, 
you know, seminal front men, really. You could put them in, like, probably the top ten of best front men ever, really. Yeah. Did that have any link to it, or do you just think it was the music? Is that just a coincidence that you had two sort of um, enigmatic front, front men involved? Not in really. Together? I think, for me, the, the person that I'm most enamoured with with The Doors was Ray Manzarek. Yeah, Manzarek. Like, his organ playing was just... It, it just... It, it set them apart, mm. you know. I love Robbie Krieger's guitar playing as well. And Jim's... His, his voice was really good, but some of his poetry I didn't really dig. Mm. But it was the it was the it was the formula. It was like that that blues format, that twelve bar blues. Yeah. And instead of the bass player having that funky that funky um, organ bass, mm. that really that's what I really dug about mm. the, mm. about the Doors. Mm. Hendrix, I mean, you know, does music really go any further than him in mm. terms of the quality and you know and the uh, the way that he kind of molded lots of different uh, musical genres. Mm. And for me. That's what's so great about music of the, the diaspora. It's yeah. that ability to kind of take your situation and in the shape, in the case of, of, of Jimi Hendrix, and kind of not follow any particular rules mm. and just put it all together and see what you come up with. You know, that's so much like, you know, if you talk about the culture of enslaved people, for example, that's very much part of our resistance. It was that, it was the ability to kind of subvert. Mm. And I see that very much in Hendrix's music and probably no more, well, I won't, I won't mention what, what track I would really say embodies that, but. Well, I think with Hendrix as well, a lot of people wasn't, wasn't really having him at the beginning because it was so freestyle and like almost like stuff that people had never heard before. Uh, uh, and it was almost seen as like a bit weird at first, but it was only when people got deep into it and they saw how, you know, I would say stupidly... It was, I would say it was still, it's still like that, particularly for the black community. They don't you know, get it. I find, I find that a lot of people within the black community are very orthodox. And anytime you do anything which is slightly avant-garde, it's like, nah, man, we're not having that. That's not part of the canon. And that's the thing that I really love about Hendrix and why I really think he embodies the music of the African diaspora because it's that ability to kind of subvert the norms and cr come, come up with something which is greater than the, the sum of its parts. Do you know what I'm saying? I do think that um, if you look at the, the, the age of people now, I think you know people who are like 40 and older probably don't have the same kind of hang-ups about their musical tastes as, as a younger generation. I don't know if it's a maturity thing and it's almost like oh, you get to a certain age where you don't care what people think anymore. But I do think there's less... Um, there's peer pressure for younger people, isn't there? It's almost like they want to listen to what their friends listen to so they can almost like belong in this kind of circle of, oh, you know, this person's good. Everybody else thinks it's good, so I like them as well. Um, I do think that people are becoming a little bit more eclectic as time's going on and, and almost like thinking, well, you know what, I just like music. I'm not really... You know, there's not that kind of right. I listen to hip hop and that's it. Yeah, Nothing else. I agree. As a DJ, I agree. Yeah, completely because I play mostly music from the '90s era. Mm. But if I had to play what I really felt I wanted, to, I would play a bit of everything. And yep. there's times when I've played absolutely everything. Yeah, I played Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, played Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Luther Vandross, yeah. Cross the Board, Earth, Wind and Fire. A bit of everything and I had to and that was when I was that was a theatre type of crowd mm -mm. but it worked mm. 10 20 years ago I couldn't be playing that people yeah. like what are you playing what's that yeah you're almost like putting it you're a, supposed to be playing this exactly. you understand what I mean and it's like no I mean I would suggest to you that the idea of black music and what black music is is still very well defined and I would suggest that for most people Jimi Hendrix does not feel fit within that paradigm although he's undoubtedly a black man who's playing music, but we have this very specific idea of what 
black music sounds like. Mm. And that's the thing that I find that I really struggle with, especially when you understand that, you know, the roots of it, the roots of rock music mm. is black music, isn't it? It's yeah. The blues, you know, yeah. if you, you know, if that's what you want to call it. And that's where I really struggle with this idea that if you've got like a pantheon of black artists, Hendrix might not necessarily be in that pantheon. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That's right. They, they'll put them outside of that pantheon. Mm. And when you know, you know, the, you know, you grew up playing on the Chitlin circuit. Mm. So that's all black clubs in the deep south. Mm. That's right. And it's only when he kind of comes out of that and is appreciated by a white audience that he's considered to be doing something which is... When he not, comes here, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and that's something that I really, that's something that I really struggle with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you touched on Curtis Mayfield, um, you know, amazing artist as we all know. And and what kind of led you into getting into that? Was that just, you know, did someone put you onto him or? It's my mum again. Yeah, so my mum's, see, my mum's record collection. So, you know, and, and the fact that his music, I associate his music with the civil rights era much more than I associate Marvin Gaye's. Mm. I mean, even, even, you know, in the early sixties when, you know, most Motown artists just singing about love and blah, blah, blah. Curtis Mayfield is writing songs like People Get Ready. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm your pusher. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, we're a winner. Yeah. You know, you know. So these are the types of songs that I kind of grew up on, and that's the music that most resonates with me. Do you know what I mean? So I will put, I could put Curtis Mayfield on, and that would be enough if I was on a desert island and I had, the, you know, the impressions and Curtis Mayfield because his music's so inspirational and reminds me of being a, a child. You know, I, I think Curtis is very underrated. I still yeah. think he doesn't really get. You know, people talk about move on up and, and that's it really. That's it. it. Just, just yeah. goes so much deeper than. Oh yeah, I would argue that Curtis Mayfield may well be the most underrated song, uh, underrated songwriter in mod, in popular music history. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because all the people who he influenced, come on, let's be honest. You know, without him, would we have Bob Marley? Without him, I don't think we'd have Jimmy Hen or many of Jimi Hendrix's like greatest songs, songs like Little Wing or Axis Boulder's Love. It's just a copy in uh, Curtis Mayfield's guitar playing technique. That's true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And for me, the lyrics, when you add to the lyrics, like Choice of Colours mm -hmm. or We're a Winner, you know, mm -hmm. these songs that are so uplifting, mm -hmm. to me, he, undoubtedly, he's the, he's the songsmith of the civil rights era. It's his music that I associate with civil rights, not Marvin Gaye's. He scored so much music as well. Oh, like. And, and the finest soundtrack in history, I would argue. Yeah. Nothing, nothing beats Superfly as a soundtrack. Superfly is the one, yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? That is yeah. like, that is absolutely top draw. You know Snoop Dogg about Superfly? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I love, you know, I love Black Caesar as a James Brown soundtrack, but nothing comes close to Superfly, does mm. it? That's just next level. Yeah. And it, it, the consciousness of his lyrics, you know, like he was like really shocked by how well Superfly did, and he saw that what the music, the the the, uh, the movie was kind of portraying, and he yeah. was like he railed against that afterwards. But you know, for me, Curtis Mayfield, undoubtedly one of my top five artists of all time. Yeah, I'm feeling you on that one. Okay, so let's move on to your five tracks. And uh, as I said to our last guest, you know, there's no. Uh, particular order in this no rhyme or reason you know I know there's probably another five tracks another 500 you could probably put in there but let's start off with number one uh, on this list who are you going with okay number one I will go with Skip James and Hard Time Killing Four Blues oh, okay mm -hmm. deep so tell me your reasoning behind that it's just one of the finest uh, blues songs I you know I can think of Bentonia Blues that really I love like the again the, the the music of of the African diaspora is something that really resonates with me and for me, I mean although that song you know was is, was um, written in the twentieth century, 
that goes back to like the 18th century, doesn't it? And you can imagine enslaved people. Yeah. That is the sound of slavery as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Mm. And it's something that really resonates, you know, with looking at me from my own person. And as that again, uh, was blues something that you heard in your, ho- in oh, your household? Ab- absolutely. Yeah. It was It was all the music that I would associate with uh, early to mid 20th century, mainly American, but not only American music. That's kind of what I grew up, Mm-mm. grew up listening to. Mm. And uh, Skip James, I came to Skip James after listening to people like Muddy Waters and stuff. Mm. Uh, and obviously Robert Johnson, Robert Johnson's kind of, you probably introduced first but Skip's music his voice that haunting voice and the mm. tune and that he plays Bentonia Blues as it's called from uh, from Bentonia Mississippi mm. just so haunting it mm. is the sound of the cotton fields mm. well we actually uh, our, our last guest we were talking about um, she, she actually mentioned country music as uh, one of her things that she listened to in her household and we, we were talking about the similarities between country music and blues and, and the storytelling element of that. And that always seems to kind of resonate with people is the storytelling and, and, mm. and, and you're saying the same thing there about, about the blues, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, music has been segregated in the States, hasn't it? You know, so when people think of country music, they think of white folk. And when they think of blues or country blues, they think of black, black folk. folk. Like you're saying, behind that is the, the need to tell these stories or to, it's life, isn't it? It's really, yeah. it's, the, it's, it, it's a discussion about life and everyday life. And uh, that's what I very much take from that mm. traditional, uh, uh, you know, uh, American music, as you might, as you might call it. Mm. everywhere you go. Times it harder than ever been before. And the people are different from door to door. Can't find no heaven, I don't care why. Okay, um, should we move on to track number two? Yeah, okay, so we just had a long discussion about Jimi Hendrix, so I would probably have to say, in, in that very same mould, is like take, talking about the music, that music that has a story behind it, and I think Jimi Hendrix electrified that better than anybody, so I would have to say Machine Gun. Okay, mm-hmm. and yeah, the, the the version that he played at the Fillmore when he was playing with uh, Band of Gypsies, so he had Buddy Miles on drums and uh, Billy Cox on bass, which I just think, like I say, I mean, it, as far as electric music's concerned, it, does it really go any further than that? And, and is there any kind of live performance that you ever saw of of Hendrix that that sticks in your mind that? that you can uh, recall? Well, sadly, I was never there, but um, the, the, the two performances, obviously, I've got, I would mention the Phil Maurice concerts uh, when he played the band, band of Gypsies, December 31st, 69, and the 1st of January, 1970, but then also the Monterey performance, which is what I saw as a kid, and I was like, whoa, that was just incredible, do yeah. you know what I mean? And that's just, I've got, I've, I've still got all three um, uh, DVDs of the Monterey performances, mm-hmm. and that's just like, you know, that's just incredible. Seminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Legend. That's when he lights his guitar on fire. Yes, of course. Yeah. And now everybody wondered what was he doing, but there was a point behind everything, isn't it? Yeah. When it comes to Jimmy. I mean, the thing with Jimmy is, like, he's honestly expressing himself, isn't he? When he does what, what he, when he does, what he does, it's not really a performance because he feels genuinely like doing it. He's not just doing it because people expect him to do it. No, it's and that's just why he him. kind of 
Yeah. That's kind of why he turned away from doing it. it was because people wanted him to do it like every time he performed. But it was like no, I don't like a performing. Do you know what I mean? Performing he, monkey. Or yeah, he's an, he was a true artist, you know, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. and that's what I very much get from from his performances is that sincerity in his you know in his performance it was real. Shall we move on to track number three? No, I don't think we should. I think we should talk a bit more about Machine Gun. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because it was such a political performance. Well, well tell, tell me what is the, what's the meaning behind Machine Gun, the song? Yeah, yeah. So Machine Gun, I mean, again, great art. It's open to interpretation. But, you know, in that song, you hear the Vietnam War, don't you? Do you know what I mean? And mm. you also hear the struggle of the Panthers. So the intro, what he says... The introduction to the performance that's on the band the Gypsies album, he says, you know, um, this is dedicated to all the people fighting in Vietnam and all the people fighting in, in you know, in the streets in, in America, um, and that that for me again is very powerful because you know I, I very much uh, see myself as, you know, being very much inspired by what went on, you know, the Black Panthers and people like that. So so that was something that I very much took from from that performance as well, but. I mean, to me, when I listen to that, you do hear the bombs and guns, and that's what B- Billy says at the end. That's what we don't want to hear. Well, Jimmy says we don't. That's what we don't want to hear. And then Billy says no bombs, no guns, and that was very much what I got from that. So it was a very anti-war statement by Jimi Hendrix uh, at a time when you know a lot of musical performance performers were still afraid to kind of you know say anything that was negative about that war. Very true. And do you, what for people out there? What um, just. Can you repeat what album um, they can get that track off? Yeah, that's on uh, Band of Gypsies. Uh, you can also hear a, um, a, vi- a different version of it on Live at the Fillmore East, which was like a double uh, album that was released many years later as a posthumous release. But Band of Gypsies, I mean, as far as live performances are concerned, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous, but for me, the best live album is, is, is undoubtedly um, the Band of Gypsies. Brilliant. Are we allowed to move on now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, so we're going to move on to track number three. And this is so far really interesting. Let's, let's see what you come with next. Yeah, so I'm going to have to go with another one of my musical uh, heroes, Curtis Mayfield, and it's We're a Winner. Okay. Which is, uh, I think he released that in 68. So again, right around the time, 67, 68. Don't think, I don't think Martin had been assassinated by them, but that was one of... The songs that it's a really upbeat song. It's dead funky. It's like really funky, um, and it was, he's talking about black people. You know, we're a winner. You know, we can succeed. You know, you know, rise up, kind of thing. And you know, if you know Curtis Mayfield and his work with the impressions, it's very soulful. You know, and uh, I get a real. If I, you know, if I'm driving, I like to listen to that car when mm. I'm driving. Like to listen to that song when I'm in the car mm. because it, it always makes me feel good and you know, uh, feel positive. Mm-mm-mm. It's, it's, it's quite uh, apparent that all the, the, your track choices so far um, are centred around people that, you know, are activists really, in their own way. Has that shaped the way you were or you just like that anyway and that's almost just like the soundtrack of your life? 
That's what it like. is. It's it's my mum and my nan. It's them and what they would what I would hear the conversations that I would hear in the house, and that's the music that was behind those conversations. That was very much kind of like like you said, the soundtrack to my childhood. You know, that's what I was listening to because my parents had it on, my nan had it on, or my mum had it on. You know, so and you know, there's people like Paul Robeson and these types of figures who, you know, we were more than just artists. These aren't just people who are playing music because it pays the bills. They were really trying to promote a positive image and to make political change through their uh, artist uh, artistic activism. So yeah, so that's why so many of my favorite favorite artists I associate with with activism as well as um, as well as just great music. Okay, and in terms of your contemporaries, you know, your you know your uh, your friends at school and stuff. How did they view you listening to these types of music? Or did you keep it to yourself? You know, we were talking to Gunan before, and she was like, "Oh, you know, I used to listen to heavy metal, but I didn't want to tell anyone." <laughs> he Hell just kept no! It to I was always trying to convert people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I was like, have you, "Have you listened to Break On Free by the Doors, man, or The Changeling, or you know?" That's that was like kind of like I always love to share my music. You know, mm. some, that's what I mean. Okay, I grew up in the eighties. But one of the things, you know, if you live in a in, if you live in a, a, a time of mass consumerism, one of the ways that you can be a bit a little bit different is by what you listen to musically. Oh. So I wasn't listening to what I wasn't promoting what was on the radio. I was promoting things that I did, you know, that deep in the crate, digging in the crates. And that's difficult to do in those days because, as I, I mentioned on numerous occasions, you know, we had Top of the Pops, we had BBC Radio One. And that was it. And that's what was so good about it. Yeah. Because people were like, what? No, I've never even heard of them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was like, oh, no, you've got to listen to this. And it was all bootleg tapes, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, in, in those days, if you were into hip-hop, there was you didn't hear any hip-hop on the radio. No. Then then Westwood come, comes along, and that was the only way you could get it, especially if you were from a working-class yeah. background, you didn't have access to Reggae, it, it was um, Rodigan, Tony yeah. Williams. Um, who else? No one else, really, that I can think of. Uh yeah, you had to really kind of search. In fact, on, in terms of uh, when I was talking about Radio 1 and, 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 and the BBC, or Top of the Pops, you also had John Peel, yeah. the old Grey Whistle Test. Whistle That's where you had to go to kind of find the, the little gems, you know, that uh, other people might look at and think, oh, that's a bit weird. And that's why when they, they brought out some DVDs for the old Grey Whistle Test, oh, man, they just... That, that was just amazing when you did that. Like, Mate, that was almost like, you know, you watch Later with Jules Holland now. That was its predecessor, wasn't Absolutely. it? Like back in the day. Bob Harris. You know, yeah, Bob Harris. I, I, I remember it in the early 80s, but I was only a kid then. Do you know what I mean? And mm. obviously you only had one telly in the house. So if no one wanted to watch it, it had to go off because my nan was running to yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was how I kind of got access to that other music, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I remember when I bought those DVDs and had the Curtis Mayfield performance. They're just treasures, aren't Unbelievable. they? Unbelievable. You know, because this before, vid like, again, we didn't have a video when all Grey Whistle Test was on so yeah. you know if no one was taping it that was it was gone forever yeah, yeah. and so when that came up yeah that was it and I also remember the Bob Marley uh, yeah, yeah. Con Concrete Jungle yeah. and Slave Driver and Slave Driver <laughs> unbelievable um, yeah big up um, old Grey Whistle Test and if anybody probably hasn't heard of it because um, of our age we're showing our age just try and check out some of the old uh, the old shows of the old Grey Whistle Test, um, you'll see some unbelievable gems on there from people you wouldn't believe performed on there, you know, A-listers, uh, legends. Um, so please check that out. Thanks for bringing that up, by the way. I don't mind leaving here to show the world we have no
Okay, um, so where were we at? Uh, so we're on chat number four now, are we? Mm-hmm. Okay, just hit me with this next one. Well, so you just maybe mentioned one, and it, 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 I know it's a bit cliche talking about Bob. Never, never, never cliche talking about Bob. Do you know what? And that's exactly how I feel. Do you know what I mean? Because again, he brought that music to the world. Really, don't t- don't get me wrong. There were people who were obviously playing that music long before him, but it's really for me, Bob, and that song, Slave Driver, off Catch a Fire which kind of really got me into looking at reggae and the, as the same way I looked at like people like uh, Curtis, you know, or Jimmy or JB Lenore or those types of people who were kind of politicising their musical genre. Yeah. So yeah, Slave Driver by The Wailers. Yeah, well, it's funny you talk about that, um, about Bob being overexposed. Uh, Spino actually having a conversation about a brilliant documentary you watched on BBC4, which about when Bob came to the UK. Bob, um, Bob Marley in Britain, that's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 which was an amazing uh, documentary. And then we actually played Slave Driver on the show. That's right. That, that, same, uh, that same edition. But, you know, I never get bored of talking about Bob Marley, you know, Especially Pop. that album. Yeah. yeah, and also, you know, that famous Rainbow performance that my mum and dad actually went to, uh, wow. you know, uh, in 1977, I think, at the Rainbow. That's in, right. Uh, famous, in, famous in performance. Finsbury Park. And, um, you know, whenever I see that, I just get goose pimples, man. And the fact that we actually had Marcia Griffiths, who's one of the I3s play at Africa, oh, yeah. That's right. Singing Three Little Birds, I'll never forget that. Goose pimples and uh, in Sefton Park, you know. So yeah, never get bored of talking about Bob Marley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's too many tracks as well, isn't it? Because now you made me think about Trench Town Rock and how much I love that. <laughs> we just hit, you know, the first lyric as well. Yeah, just love that song. But again, you know, because he politicised his musical genre, which is something that is so important for me. You know, my music. I get bored of listening to to, to frothy music. I'm always looking for something in the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Do you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? And that's why, like, my hip hop, my t- choice, my taste in hip hop is very much. Those political artists, so you men- mentioned Public Enemy and I mentioned Next Clan and Paris and, you know, it's even Intelligent Hoodlum, who later on changed the Tragedy. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But um, that kind of, that was really, like, I I struggled as a, as a teenager to listen to music if it didn't have that conscious message. I was going to say it that. So what, about, what about stuff like love songs? Yeah, yeah, like well... I you mean, must have a favourite love song out there, or, or yeah, or but it's probably few. something by Curtis Mayfield. If you really put me, if you really made me think about it, or you know, I love Minnie Ripperton. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. you know, I love Le Fleur or you know, or Black Gold of the Sun. These are the kinds of songs that I love. Like you know, I love heavy guitars. Do you know what I mean yeah. as well? So, um, but yeah, I do. I mean, again, for me. It's that political message, and even the songs that are love songs. I've got songs. They've either got a political yeah. message, or the person that's singing them usually sings you know about I mean? political yeah. message. Okay, that makes sense. Or, or a struggle. Yeah, 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 it's all good. Yeah, that's what we're here to find out, man. Okay, so uh, how do you follow Bob? What's, what's, what's uh, track number five then? I will say, I started off talking about The Doors because these were the, f- the, the first band that I got into that were a bit more eclectic. Um, I say The Changeling. Changeling of LA Woman. That's okay. just a, I mean, again, they did so many great blues songs. But that one, I just, it's so funky. Do you know what I mean? It's just, ugh, it's that 
again, it's 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 Manza, I reckon. It's, yeah, it's that that airy to organ, that, <laughs> like you could you just hear that influence in 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 most of the songs that I like by them. It, yeah, it's yeah. because of that organ, so, I have mm. to say. But you know, it is complemented by you know Jim's like enigmatic, you know, performances and somewhat craziness in in a lot of ways. But you know. Yeah, he was very nihilistic, do you know what I mean? And that kind of grates against what I say about what I'm, what I really like about you know about music. But like his voice, I think he had a really soulful, bluesy yeah, voice, yeah. and uh, I've re- that's why I love so many of the songs that are, are rooted in that blues. I mean, let's be honest, they are a great blue-eyed soul band as well. Because yeah, yeah, you yeah. think of "Touch Me," you know, or "Love Me Two Times," yeah, you could, yeah, you know. They they're very like brassy and sound you know and uh, and and so even sound, the end of break on through you know the oh, way yeah. that mm. the, the, the way that sort of comes out with very soulful very bluesy do you know what I mean yeah. all the way through and I think they were very aware of that within within them within their sound mm. but their best songs for me you know I, I, I mean I must have, I've got to mention things like when the music's over again because what got me into them was I watched live at the Hollywood Bowl and still remember watching it in the summer of 1988 early morning Saturday morning someone had lent me the video and said you've got to watch this and I watched that and it, it's that that organ as a start and then he goes he, he goes into when the music's over and that's what hooked me on them yeah. and then I found like the changings on LA Woman so that's the last of the albums but that's just like a it's just such a funky blues yeah. song. It's mad. That's about the same time that I got into the doors. I was I was working for a, a company that um, exports uh, stickers of pop stars, you know, like Rolling Stone stickers yeah. and stuff like that. Like so, we had this this warehouse, and then we used to take these these stickers up to Soho and all these places, and and the Doors and Jim Morrison was always one of our big sellers. I used to think I don't know anything about this band, so every one that was selling well, I would find out more about the band, and, that, and then sort of got into got into them, and I was just like hooked, man. I was just like, wow, why haven't I heard this music before? Yeah. Um, you know, I come from a mixed race family, so we did have as, as much white music and as as, as black music mm. in, in our household, so I, I was quite averse to, to both, but never came across um, never came across the doors until like late eighties. See, see, and it's so funny that you say that because I kind of railed against that idea of black and white music. I really liked the fact that my black friends thought I was weird because I was listening to this music that was considered to be white. I was like, no, because it's not white. It's just music. It might be white people. Exactly, it's yeah, just music. Yeah, yeah. It might be white people singing it, but when you think about the musical origins, yeah. you know, it's very much pot- rooted in, in, in so-called black culture. Yeah. And I liked the people who kind of muddied those waters, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and did it in a really original way. Don't get me wrong, I love a lot of what, what the, the Rolling Stones did, mm. but, the, the, but the Doors t- took it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I really lo- loved. And then on the opposite side, I really loved love yeah. because they kind of took a folky type of side of music that you'd associate with with, with white people, mm. and they grounded it like they 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 were a black group. well they were a mixed race group. Again, mm. this idea of race yeah. where music concerned, mm. I struggle with it. You know that were playing that that type of music and did it in a very cool avant-garde way, adding brass, but mm. playing it in like a, a Spanish style. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not like a not like a jazz or a, or a soul kind of style and that's something else that I really that I really like yeah it's interesting to say that we were talking about this the other day that um, we really need to get out of this pigeonholing people into you know even musicians you know there's young musicians out there that like might like rock music or might like guitar music but won't won't necessarily get into it because one there's no access for them or two you know they're not seen as being part of that 
genre. So they almost like kind of come out of it and then do something which they are pigeonholed by yeah. hip-hop and grime. It seems to be the order of the, order of the day for everybody. And I think we really need to get around that. Um, Massively so. And yeah. realise that, you know, black people can play classical music, yeah. they can play rock music, they can play any type of music, you know. But, but, and this is something that I only associate with people within the diaspora, because you've got no problem. People in, people in Africa have no problem playing classical music because no. they know they don't question their blackness. But in the diaspora, mm. people think, well, if I don't do that, I'm not being black. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, Whereas yeah, if you're yeah, in yeah. Africa and you're growing up in, a, in an all-black society, you can do whatever you want because yeah. no one associates that with you being authentically black. And that's one of the, the things that I think cripples the culture. And that's why I come back to Jimmy because Jimmy had to deal with that. Black, black, black music would not play Jimi Hendrix mm. at all. And mm. I would still say they don't now. Does he, did you hear him on Radio 6? No, do you know what I'm saying? So, so, so I would say I would suggest that there's still people who kind of pigeonhole themselves, and I, I would say that it extends much further than music. And I think it's really crippling for black people, especially black black working class people who don't who have limited access because of resource. So we very much kind of suggest that it it's only black if we're doing things that have been considered to be black. And I think that that even goes, extends as far, not as much as it used to, certainly not when I was growing up, to doing well in school. Do you know what I mean? A lot of black kids think you're not being black if you do well in school. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and you've got to really challenge that kind of, that, that, some of these types of ideas. Yeah, yeah. There's a really good book, which is, you know, it's almost 30 years old now, but it's written by a guy you've probably heard of called Paul Gilroy. Wrote a book called The Black Atlantic in, in, in 1993. Okay. The book was published. But he kind of highlights the fact that this, these ideas of authenticity or cultural authenticity are really crippling. And usually they, they cripple the people who are, are most um, disadvantaged within society because they limit them to only going down certain routes yeah. because they're the routes that are considered to be the things that they do. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of black kids, again, from my generation, it was like sports. You know, if you didn't make it in sports, then you weren't going to make it or performance. That's right. So, yeah. you know, you've got you to be a, a singer or a dancer. Do you know what I mean? And if you don't make it, then that's it. You haven't made it. But there's such, like, there are areas that are so difficult to succeed in, you know. And the, the, even within, the further you get within, you know, so if you're a good footballer, the, the further down that line, pipeline you get, it's a, like, it's a funnel, isn't it? Like more and more people have to get chopped away in order to you to make it to the, the Premier League or whatever. Same with singing and dancing, you know. The, it, it, it's a limiting path. Whereas education opens you up to a lot more opportunities because it's a lot more, the skills are more transferable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You can be a great footballer, but not good enough to play in the Premiership. And that means that those skills aren't really transferable. You might be able to become a trainer or, but, but you know, if, you, if you've got a maths degree, you know, there's a lot of different areas you can get into. Yeah, but yeah. because of the way the culture has kind of been shaped, because we've had limited options in those areas, we no longer, we don't see them as traditional routes. Mm. So if you go down one of these non-traditional routes, I remember being called, you know, if you're doing well at school, or you, you know, you're acting white. Yeah, do you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, or you've got, you read books, what? You know, yeah. or, or for me, you play Dungeons and Dragons. These are the types of silly things you'd, yeah. have to, you'd have to deal with. But because I was very comfortable in myself, because I knew where I was coming from with my family, they couldn't really ch- challenge yeah. that because I was, you know, as but, well as reading. But that's reading. not the norm, though. You know, like no, it's not the norm. You know, nine out of ten would completely go the other way and say, "Oh, everyone sees that as weird. I better conform with what everyone else is doing." Exactly. So more power to you on exactly. that one. But what we need to do is change the narrative, don't we? And we Absolutely. need to, you know, people like ourselves. I mean, we've been talking about it already about trying to get together some sort of cultural hub that basically gives everyone a chance to access any type of music. And also not 
just on the performance side, because we talk about this all the time, you know, everybody wants to be a star in front of the mic, but there's so much money that you could be making on the production side of creative, stuff. Creative. Why creative, don't yeah. young black people look at that as a, as, as a, a, a way of Songwriting. Yeah, but not even that. Anything around Anything production, similar. you know, yeah. stage managing, lighting, all this stuff is good paid work all the year round. That's true. But it's never highlighted as no. a career. It's almost like, yeah, you could be a rapper, but if you're not going to be a rapper, then there's not really much down for you. And that's not the... No. That's no way near... Exactly. I know plenty of companies that will quite happily take on, uh, you know, young people, not just black kids, but underprivileged kids from the area. Song, there's good songwriters as well, for example. Look at Marsha. Look what yeah. Marsha's done yeah. from Liverpool. Yeah. She wrote for Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kids of this generation wouldn't have a clue yeah. who Marsha Ambrosius is. From Flowetry, right? From Flowetry, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that for me, is a, is a key point is that we don't think of ourselves we don't think of ourselves as Barry Gordy's we only see ourselves as Michael Jackson's or Marvin Gaye's that's right do you know what I'm saying and let's you know let's be honest you know Barry's still there isn't he you know so that kind of tells you something about the longevity associated with that we get kind of caught up in the fame and don't forget about the other side of, you know and I think that's something that we've really got to address yeah you know I don't know where it comes from I think it's because you know you can only be what you can see in many cases, mm-hmm. but we do have the Berry Gordies. We do yeah. have these people, you know, the, the great songwriting trios. Got loads of them. I do think thing, things are definitely. I've been I've been in Liverpool twenty two years now, and it's changed like astronomically in that time. In sure has. You know, access and opportunity, but nowhere near as much as it could have been. But what I do see now is. Um, where people just wouldn't recognise that this was an issue before it's actually being recognised. Before it was, you'd say something to people, it'd fall on, whatever it was, it'd fall on deaf ears. Or, That's right. You, you, you're just moaning. Now it's sort of like, actually, no, you're right. And actually we are going to listen and we are going to try and make a change. So we're at that stage now. The what, next stage is to make that change. What would you say has brought that about though? I think definitely, um, you know, all the stuff that happened in America, um, the George Floyd stuff. Uh, definitely made people almost like I think so many people were just we'd seen it all before but there was a lot of people who had never seen anything like that before which was quite shocking to me that they'd never seen it but you know how it is like if you're not exposed to something some people will turn a blind eye to it and just carry on with their normal lives but that was something that nobody could hide from so the shock value in that I'd seen people that you know over the years that I'd never really taken much notice of these things, sort of said, no, this, this, this just isn't right. And then started to look at other things that have been happening and almost like educating themselves. And then, so you've got that, but then you've also got, you know, the, even people that did want to resist making a change had no choice but to make a change because, you know, certain things were implemented. Which is what a lot of the media is doing now. You yeah, see it in yeah, the media yeah. now yeah. in front of you. As soon as you put on the TV, you see the difference already. Yeah. So, you know. But a lot of it is, I look at it and go, oh, too little, too late, or... You Are you just doing so, it to fill the narrative? It's so obvious, yeah, do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't have it both ways. I'd rather, you know, even if it's done in a corny or condescending or, you know, being forced to do it, it's happening, isn't it? It's, it's, it's and, happening. And it's better than it not happening. But yeah, I am aware of, you know, there's certain things that I look at and I think, mm, you know, that's a bit... Of, I've of, got a couple of points to make in relation to that. First of all, it's it, it's shocking that it takes the horror of someone to be executed on screen to kind of make, mm. the, to make people realise that there's a necessity to change. And then on top of that, I worry about whether it's all about the optics. So people realise... 
this doesn't look good, so they will make optical changes. No. And then even on top of that, you've got the idea of, does that mean that they're really going to relinquish control or are they just going to give a little bit more space to do a little more, a little bit more? It's just space. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's my great worry. Mm. And that's why I think we've got to continue to push. You know, as, 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 as Curtis said, keep on, you've got to keep on pushing. Mm. You know, uh, did you see uh, in the news yesterday, uh, the Metropolitan Police are now having a discussion whether or not they're going to acknowledge that they're institutionally racist. Yes. You know, it's those types of things, isn't it? There's no way <laughs> they would have made that kind of announcement. It's something that they've pushed against for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And yet now they, they, they're discussing whether or not they're going to make that that, uh, that um, announcement. But again, as you say, people like you and I have always known that. You know, but we're considered to have a chip on our shoulder or, you know, don't be daft, you know. Mm. The police are upstanding members of society. And again, in this country, what really highlighted that was the, the murder of the, the girl by the policeman. You know, yeah. so when, oh, yeah, black, yeah, yeah. When, when black people are being murdered, it doesn't seem to really, really register. But then when it was a woman who could be, who could be murdered in such a callous way, people just started to realize, wow, wow yeah, the police aren't necessarily... They're to protect and serve, to use a, a, a colloquialism from our American cousins. Oh. You know that you know there is a, a police who will use their position to ab and abuse that position, and we've known that for, for generations. Certainly in this city, you know, you know, it's forty years since the the nineteen eighty one riot, isn't it? And you know, we, we've been very aware of kind of not seeing the police as being you know our friends and our protectors, as people who come and you know are are, are brutalizers or oppressors. So. That's something that I hope, you know, will change, but I'm very skeptical. I worry with change around this issue, it, can, it tends to wax and wane, doesn't it? Mm. You know, I remember wearing the Africa pendants. In 93, 94, <laughs> 95, 96, yeah. and then and they disappeared. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so I worry, you know. I think that, you know, one way that it can change or help to make a positive change is if there are more people in prominent positions that can, you know, that are of colour, that can almost like lead you know, uh, what's the word, organically, but, you know, if they're doing it themselves, if, if black people are doing it themselves, then you don't have to rely on other people to be doing it as well. You, you, you can almost create your own narrative. So I think that's... And that's my concern, because <laughs> I think it's about not necessarily what leaders do or people in positions of power, but organisationally, community-based organisations who will push for change that's and it be consistent. Mm. That's, that's my great concern is that they do put one or two people and say, we'll trust you to go off and make change. And, you know, as an individual, it's very difficult. You become tired, disillusioned, etc. You just enjoy getting your, 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 your wages. You know, whereas if a community is doing it and they're progressively doing it because they establish their own institutions and organisations, then I think we're more likely to see change. Very but true. I always worry when it's like, the TV doing it. Do you know what I mean? Or, oh yeah, we'll put we'll put someone on. You know, we'll have a we'll have a we'll have now have a broadcaster who's black. Do you know what I mean? Which they're doing more of now. Yeah. News yeah. readers and everything. Weather yeah. people, you know, Weather popping people. up everywhere. 
And yeah, it's a good thing, but I don't want it to be an act of tokenism yeah. and I don't want it to be oversaturation. You know, I watched, uh, I say this to my, uh, we, we did it the other day, we were watching like the adverts <laughs> during the programme, which you hardly do. And I just said to my family, just watch how many black people are in these, these adverts. And like literally, and then what they do is mostly have mixed race families where it's a, a, a black man and a white woman and then mixed race kids. Still usually a food advert as well. Yeah, but, but, yeah, that's but like every idea. single advert. And I, and I was like, well, that isn't really kind of symptomatic of the country. Not everybody is a mixed race family. So, you know, it's for me, it's where are you getting your information from? Because if you're still having an all white um, advertising company making an advert, then surely you're still not getting a correct representation of the way it should really be. So I think it comes back to who are the people that are making the decisions, you know? And if it's still, you know, not a mixed board, whether it be uh, interviewing people, selecting applications for jobs, you're still going to get these inconsistencies, aren't you? So I think that really needs to be looked at. And the, the other thing is, is that it can only affect certain areas as well. There's got, and what I mean by that is, there's so much in this society where you've got to have a qualification in order to access yeah. particular jobs. And yet we know that the education, uh, the education institution, educational institutions in this country fail black people on a number, in a number of different ways. Yeah. So again, it's that comes back to that issue of you can only be what you can what you can see. You know, if you look at, I'm, I'm a historian, but if I, you know, my my faculty at the University of Liverpool, there's n literally no black faculty whatsoever. There's no black faculty. In certain areas within this country, there's still massive leaps to be made. Just the ACS, isn't it? That's all go. there is. That's all and you've got. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about employed workers. I'm yeah. talking about, you know, I'm doing my PhD there, and there's literally no black faculty. There's no black lecturers in the history department. Mm. And that's a major issue, not just in this city, across history departments across the, across the country. The, UK, yeah, the Royal right. Historical Society produced a report in 2019 lambasting the, the, the situation in terms of, you know, uh, history faculties in, in, in top academic institutions in this country for that exact reason because mm. there's no black staff mm. yeah. yeah so yeah we've, we're trying to right the wrongs of the world which is going to be practically impossible but you know you know these are our opinions and these are you know you don't have to take them on board but I would just suggest to kind of listen to what we're saying and do some research and you'll see that you know what we're saying is kind of true and that we are moving forward and we are seeing positivity, but, you know, there's still a long, long way to go is what we're trying to say, yeah. here, right? I mean, and, you know, again, it, 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 I think it says a lot about our society where we think it's stranger to see a black doctor than to see a black performing artist or a black footballer. You know, let's be honest, how can it be that I know more black premiership footballers as, a pair, as an individual than I know black doctors? Mm. Surely that is a, a crazy anomaly. You know, how many footballers do we need in the society? But how many doctors do we need? Doctors, obviously, you know, in terms of the, provide, the, the service that they provide for society, they provide a key, they, you know, they, they're key providers of, of, of a service. But yeah, I know more black footballers than, any black, than I know black doctors. I, I consider that to be a great thing. I think that's the same for any society. system as well. Even the judicial system is the same. Yeah, of course. Can't think of any famous... Yeah, attorneys or that's a really interesting one, a judicial one. We we went to a, uh, we went to a, uh, they were trying to get more young people to be magistrates, yeah, um, or more black people actually. Um, and when I heard some of the figures that were coming out around how many magistrates there were, it was almost like so. It makes sense that 
more young black people get sent to sent to jail, you know, in proportion to to the to white counterparts. If all the the magistrates are white, then obviously then it's only natural that's that's going to happen. It goes back to the thing that I'm saying before. You, you need to have a mix. We're not just talking about uh, we're talking about age. We're talking about gender. Everything. Everything. You know that needs to be represented in everything we do, and that's the only way you're going to get, um, you know, fairness, a fair system, is when every everything's set up in a fair way. You know? Yeah. So the needs, you know, the, the the systems of society, the things that you know create people who can contribute to society, need to be dismantled and re reassembled to allow black people to be able to move within those spaces. That's currently not the case. A lot of people just say, well, we, are, we live in a society where everyone's got the right to get an education, blah, blah, blah. But they don't think about the everyday lives of these individuals and where they come from within, you know, within communities. And then people say, well, you know, the working class and, you know, the great arguments about, you know, the, 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 the poor white working class have the same issues. They do. That's absolutely the case, but they don't have to deal with race as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They don't have to. They, they can aspire. You know, you wouldn't know a working class person was working class if they changed their accents or if they you put know a put on, on a suit yeah. on. Do you know what I mean? And so these are some things that we, you know, that that people don't want to highlight or address as part of the problem, but they are undoubtedly mm-hmm. part of the problem. And you know, this may be might might be a reason why I think we need to start addressing some of the issues around this intergenerational disadvantage that's created that's shaped the you know a lot of the culture within the society particularly in a society like ours we talked about monarchy earlier on you know where we still the, the class system is so rooted isn't it it's such a part of the history of this society now it functions uh, and then you just add race on top of that and it becomes an even even more of an issue yeah well, we could actually talk about this for hours actually and we we're probably gonna have to get you on again and uh, chat more about um I wanted to dig a bit more deeper into Liverpool's music history and Liverpool's black music history. So we'll probably do that, get you on another podcast and, and love to talk further about that, but we're running out of time today. Um, just wanted to flag up a couple of things. We have a great show coming up in February, a hip hop showcase at um, Liverpool Philharmonic Music Rooms featuring a L100 Cypher, um, Awate, um, uh, app, uh, Rapper from with African descent from uh, London, and also who else? Who else do we have? We have Nelson. Nelson MC Nelson, who performed at Africa OEA a few years ago, uh, a wonderful talent, as as well as No Faking, uh, lots of people that we've worked with. It's the first of our thirtieth anniversary shows where we're going to kind of dig back into. You know, we, we've obviously done lots of music from Africa, but we've also worked with you know No Faking. We've worked with Cream. We've worked yeah. with Positive Vibrations. There's so many different uh, you know organisations that have helped shape what we do over the years so we want to pay a homage to that in our 30th anniversary uh next year and the first ones we're, we're going to be doing is the hip-hop show in february february the third tickets on liverpool philharmonic website and then also obviously africa oye will be announcing um the dates for the festival in january so keep uh, up on all our socials africa oye.com facebook.com twitter blah 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 um, so yeah, that's about it for this month's edition of um, the OEA World Pod. I'd like to thank uh, my co-host Spy. Thank you, thank you, Lawrence and Lawrence Westgaff. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really informative, and um, we'll see you next month. Thank you very much.